We'll go ahead and pray and get started. Good morning, everybody. So, looks like the near end of summer vacations are are uh, taking hold, hopefully. So, let me open us up in a word of prayer. So, Father, we thank you for this precious time to be together with the saints and to have a heart and a mind to just worship you in this blessed spirit and in this blessed truth that you've given us. We just praise you for that, Lord. It is the means by which we can know you and to be anchored in your truths and not tossed to and fro like so much of this world and even within the church. Lord, we thank you for this text. We thank you for this blessed work of the Apostle Paul and just the depths and breadth that he reaches in his thinking and his writing of this letter to this church in Rome. And we just thank you for the privilege of opening it up this morning and each and every morning to, to just honor you in your word. And Lord, to do this always in your precious name, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, um, so we are continuing on. Um, we're we're kind of making a one small step forward from the text we've been in, which has been Romans 2, 1 through 5. Uh, last week, we, we took a look at what I would call kind of the grand sweep of redemption that culminates in a final judgment uh, at the end of the day of the Lord and then on into the eternal state, which is just so glorious the way Scripture presents it. But then you come to verse 6, and I want to read uh, verse uh, 6 through 11 for us, because that's the text we'll be focusing on over the next uh, coming Sundays. So Romans 2, verse 6 says, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil the Jew first, and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first, and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Now, there's a couple things about this text that are very helpful. And if you go back up to verses 1 through 5, you will notice that Paul uses either the word judge or judgment seven times. He then comes to this portion, and one of the things you'll see 
is he emphasizes every human being, every one, right? He says it three different times, three different ways in this text. Paul is in many ways turning our attention in this transition from what we looked at last week in this apocalyptic judgment of the world, the creation, the disorder that ensues, and what you see is, is really a, a very large, very apocalyptic picture as we saw last week. This text peels right into each and every one of us if we let it. And I want to show you that this morning. I was, as I unpack this, um, uh, I think we will see, I wrote a note, He's turning our attention to how man judges, how we judge, verse 2, 1 through 3. Who are you, O man, who judges one when you do the very same thing yourself? So he's turning us from the hypocrisy of our judgment, right, to the judgment that God uses. And that's what I want us to see more than anything this morning. His judgment as the scriptures say in front of us, is based on what we do. Now let that fall on you for a minute, right? I want to read, I've mentioned Kenneth Wiest. I really appreciate um, the work he has done in his expanded translation. One of the things you notice in that is he couples verse 5 of Romans 2 uh, to this section of Scripture between verse 5 and 8. And I just want to read this to you. So this is his expanded translation of this text in Romans 2, 5 through 8, and I think it's very helpful. But according to your obstinate and unrepentant heart, you are storing up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Pay attention to that. The righteous judgment of God who recompenses each according to his works. To those on one hand who by steadfastness of a good work seek glory and honor and incorruptibility, life eternal. But to those on the other hand, so see the way he brings out the hands, right? The sheep and the goats that we read about last week. But to those on the other hand, who out of a factious spirit are both also non-persuadable with respect to the truth. You ever encounter anybody like that? Non-persuadable to the truth. They simply won't hear it. It's fearful to me that an awful lot of those folks are folks that have read the Bible and have said, no thanks, God. I'd rather see it this way, right? 
Some of them are standing in their pulpit this morning speaking to thousands of people. It's fearful to me when I unpack this text. But to those, on the other hand, who out of a factious spirit are both also non-persuadable with respect to the truth and persuadable with respect to unrighteousness, wrath and anger. There's a commentary, Robert Haldane, he's kind of 1700-ish, wrote his commentary on the book of Romans in 1816. He says this, and I just thought it would be so helpful to share this as I studied this the last couple of weeks. Let me read verse 6 again from the ESV. He will render to each one according to his works. And Haldane says of this passage, God as the sovereign judge of men, receives from them their good and evil actions. Now, don't let this be the man out there. Let this be the man or the woman right here, because that's, that's what the intention of this text is, right? He receives from them their good and evil actions. These he takes from their hands, so to speak, such as they are, and places them to their account. Remember the books from last week? The books opened up. The books opened up. And places them to their account, whether they are to his glory or his dishonor. Haldane says, sinners do not calculate upon this righteous procedure. They commit sin without thinking of God and without considering that he remembers all their actions. I love this. There is, however, an invisible hand which is treasuring up all that man thinks, all that he says, and all that he does. Not the least part is lost. All is laid up in the treasury of justice. We're getting into the deep waters of God's judgment of mankind. And what I want you to see as we work our way through this is a distinction between God's judgment and God's salvation. That's what I want you to see. Okay. A distinction between God's judgment and God's salvation and the means by which he judges versus the means by which he saves. That's what I want you to see. Okay. Because that is precisely what Paul is helping us see here. And for any of us that have come out of a false works-based religion, it is absolutely essential that we understand this if we are ever going to effectively witness back into someone bound up in these religions. All this laid up in the treasury of justice. Then, after God has thus received all, he will also restore all. He will cause to descend again upon men what they have made to ascend to him. 
everything that rises up out of our life and gets captured in that book is coming right back down on me when it is my time for that judgment. Haldane says on the comment to every man, because it's easy to read this passage and say, well, those are the unbelievers. Those are those that will perish in hell, okay? That's why Paul says three times in this text, to every man, right? To every man, Haldane says, the judgment will be particular to every individual. Now, that, that should just strike an acute awareness to how we conduct ourselves every day. Right there, right? Everyone will have to answer for himself. This judgment of those who are under the law will not receive either an imputation of good or bad works of one to another. There will not be, for those that are under the law, an imputation of anything. There is no one but you responsible is the point here but it is for those that are under the law. And here we begin to see the two kinds of people that Paul unpacks all the way out into Romans 8, if you read it out, okay? As the judgment of those who are under grace receives for them the merits of Jesus Christ. But notice he doesn't say that the judgment goes away. He says that the judgment receives the merits of Jesus Christ, right? And I think the danger there, even in our Christian life, is once we've come to a saving relationship with Christ, we think we get a pass. That's the danger. The point here Paul is making is that is not the case at all. And he unpacks this for the next five chapters of this book of Romans. But every one of the former, those that are under the law, shall answer for his own proper works. Here we see the narrow gate and the wide road and the basis for the judgment, which is based on the righteousness demanded by God. And this is why Paul says in Romans 3.20, so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may be accountable to God. So what Paul's doing in this book is he is taking us right back to the beginning of mankind, and he's pulling the entire history of mankind through this book of Romans, to the saved and to the unsaved, right? And then he comments on the according to his deeds. That is to say, Haldane says, either according to his righteousness, and notice the personal nature of that. There's no excuses. There's no one externally to blame. There's no bad parenting. There's no bad upbringing. There's no external basis that you can stand on is the point. None. Because it is based on what we do according to the law, right? If any were found in himself righteous, which will not be the case, for all men are sinners, right? All of us. 
but it will be according to the judgment to require righteousness, or it will be according to his sins, one of the two. In one word, according as everyone shall be found either righteous or unrighteous. All right? This is one of the reasons why it's important to understand God brings us to Christ through the deep and convicting condemnation because of our sins. That's the work the Holy Spirit does to us. Right? That, that's, that's what allows us to turn to that cross and see with all the glory of Christ in place of our self on that cross. It is the conviction of sin. And every one of us come through this judgment. Either when we come to Christ and we'll be declared righteous or we reject Christ and we'll stand on our own in that court of the white throne judgment we talked about last week, right? That is going to be, that is the gathering of the whole history of humanity and the separation of the sheeps and the goat, right? Now, I, I want to just uh, look at some scriptures with you. Look at Job 34, 11. And I, I think in here, you'll begin to see why there is such Why there are so many different ways that so many false works-based religions abuse the Bible to justify their basis for their works-based religion. Do you hear me? They use the Bible. If you've ever witnessed to a very studied Catholic, they use the Bible very effectively. Look at some of these passages with me. Job 34.11 says... For according to the work of a man, he will repay him. And according to his ways, he will make it befall him. Psalm 62, verse 12. And that you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work an exact quote of Paul. In this Romans 2.6. Pulled it straight out of Psalm 62.12. Old Testament. Teaching. Works. Based. Recompense. Proverbs 24.12. If you say, behold, we did not know this. There comes the excuses. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his, what, work? Isaiah 3.10 through 11. Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat of the fruit of their deeds. So now we have the righteous and it going well for them and will eat the fruit of their deeds, the fruit of their good works. Right? 
Woe to the wicked, for it shall be ill with him. For what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. In a very careful way, that sounds a lot like a works-based religion, doesn't it? If you don't understand what the work of Christ means, you will very easily fall into this. Because now I'm on the grand human scale of a little bit better, a little bit worse, and that's how I get where I need to be. And it sounds as simple as this. I'm a pretty good person. And that pretty good means I'm a whole lot better than an awful lot of people who I think are going to tilt the scale and put me up in the good works category, right? We can't separate, but we must understand the distinction between God's judgment and how he saves. That's what Paul is trying to help the church in Rome understand. Jeremiah 17.10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. And at Ezekiel 18.13, and I could have pulled 10 pages of these. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, every one, there it is, according to his ways, declares the Lord God, and repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. And now I want to turn to the New Testament, where it becomes clearer as to how the believer fits into this overall reality of how our works play into this overall work of redemption. Because John and Paul make it wonderfully clear. 1 Corinthians 3.8, you'll start to see it right here. He who plants and he who waters of are one. 1 Corinthians 3.8. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. 1 Corinthians 3.11, just a few verses along. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So there's the foundation that determines whether the works are even meaningful or not from a salvation perspective, but not from a judgment perspective. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation, on Christ, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, verse 13, each one's work will become what? Manifest. For the day, what day is that? We'll disclose it. There it is. It's Paul, what Paul's talking about. The day of the Lord. All this will be manifested. The sheep and all that they've done in Christ. The goats and all they've done outside of Christ. Right? Verse 14. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. That's a fearful passage, isn't it? God will call out for the believer 
those things that survived and those things that were a complete waste of time in the overall grand plan of redemption. Ryan. But we'll receive a reward for what survives. So there you see this mystery that we won't understand until we get to heaven. But there are degrees of heaven, meaning there are rewards based on our deeds that will be granted to us by our Lord, by what we did in this life in Christ, on the foundation of Christ. And this, dear brothers and sisters, is the stewardship that we have of the namesake that we carry, our Lord Jesus Christ. And God is making it very clear to us through these passages that there comes a day where it too will come under the Lord's examination, right? This is how Paul stirs us up. We'll receive a reward, but look at verse 15. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. First Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Not what was visible necessarily, but the motive of the heart behind him. And that's where our personal examination and going before the Lord really becomes important because we can become so blinded by our motives and those motives, misguided, flow right out into our behaviors and this is precisely what is being judged, right? And as you've already noticed, the New Testament text is full of this exact same doctrine. 2 Corinthians um, let me finish uh, 1 Corinthians 4 5 sorry then each one will receive his commendation from God once he's called out everything the commendation will come those rewards 2 Corinthians 5 10 we all know this passage well but I want it to be in the context of the judgment seat of Christ you see it For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body. Whether good or evil. Get Galatians 6, 7, and 8. It just keeps coming. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. And if you look carefully at the previous verses, this is written to believers. <laughs> God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. 
For the one who sows to his own flesh will, the, will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Matthew 16, verse 27, and now we get into some of the passages that our Lord himself teaches. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. And we know these passages, but we tend to just immediately snap our minds to the unbeliever who's going to be condemned. But I think we've already shown in the context of all of this that that is not at all the full context of this, right? Matthew 25, verse 15. You know this passage, but if you look at this entire section, you have a whole series of parables, this one being the talents which then transitions right into the white throne judgment. What is the purpose of the parable of the talents? I'm giving you five. I'm giving you three. I'm giving you one. What is the Lord's purpose in telling that parable? He gives the resources we have in the ministry of Christ, and we will personally be accountable for how we use them for the kingdom or not. It's called stewardship. And it is part of the basis of how we will be carefully examined by our Lord himself, right? And as I said last week, and as I studied these passages, I am quite <laughs> hopeful and confident that that last tear that gets wiped away is with all this in the rearview mirror, right? But the talents reveal the stewardship we have been given. It also conjures up the reality that it is the Lord who gives us the gifts that he gives us. And there's a certain part of that that says we should be content with those gifts until we have completely exhausted them for the Lord. <laughs> right? So much of the church just, they want this gift and they want that gift and uh, they go and they procure that for themselves, but who knows where that comes from? Because right here it comes from the Lord, right? And he equips the church to be fitted together so that there is not only every need filled, but every need within the body where there's lacking, the body as a whole fills it as one, the unity of the body of Christ, right? Look at Matthew 24, verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But if you pay attention to what precedes that, right? In verse 34, it says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit 
on his glorious throne, and before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And that's where you see verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And this is when the calling process has completed. And the only thing that is left is to take the goats and saint him and his minions and banish them with sin and death in the lake of fire. And then we move forward in the eternal bliss with our Lord, with all that, in a very real sense, behind us, right? Paul pulls, pulls this together in Romans 14, 12. And what you see in this entire section of Romans 14 is the importance of not passing judgment on one another, which comes right out of Romans 2, 1, 2, and 3. Who are you, O man, to judge one for the very same things you do? And it is speaking to the harmony that is required and the unity that is required and commanded in the church. Let's pick it up at verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brothers? Or you who, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. Remember that second Adam exaltation we talked about last week? There it is, right? And every tongue shall confess to God. There's this judgment that's going to take place. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. He's speaking that directly to the church as a motivation and a warning to the supreme importance of the unity in the church. Love in truth, truth in love, right, is how that unity is forged. So the question that I found myself kind of working my way through, and some of you may have as well, is how do you harmonize this idea of judgment with grace? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, you all know well, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And look what it's, this just throws a wrench right here in the person who has bought the idea that it is my good works that are going to save me. There's the problem. How are we justified? Justification is about salvation. Judgment is about deeds done in the life of the person. 
Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. This is why the crowns go right back to the Lamb right here. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works. <laughs> so that no one may boast. And right now you're going, Paul, would you get this right? <laughs> works, 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 works. Judgment, 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 judgment. And now you're saying it is for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God is the operative part. Not a result of works. That's judgment. Not salvation. Salvation comes totally separate and distinct of the righteous judgment that we receive. And we can all say, thanks be to God. Because none of us would ever stand that judgment. Right? That's the point. That's Paul's point. I appreciated a couple of MacArthur's comments on this passage. First, he says, Paul, the great apostle of salvation by grace, alone through faith, consistently taught that God's judgment of believers as well as unbelievers will be based on works. Because you get through into this and you're kind of going, do I understand this right? <laughs> do, do I, am I understanding this right? He goes on to say the subjective criterion for salvation is faith alone. That's the key. It is faith in something outside of us and outside of the law, which is exactly where he goes in Romans 3.21 and Romans 5 and Romans 8. But the objective reality... Uh, of that salvation is manifested in the subsequent godly works. So prior to our life in Christ, they were filthy rags. Coming to the cross, we have an admixture of both good works that will stand beautifully in the Lord and wood, hay, and stubble that will just go poof. And they give us that to take that right here. And these good works are the work of the Holy Spirit that leads and empowers the believer to perform them. For that reason, good deeds are perfectly, a perfectly valid basis for God's judgment. And the only good deeds will be those deeds done in Christ in the eternal sense, right? Salvation is not by works, but it will assuredly produce works. And there's the mark, right? We can't see the heart. We can't see the, the, the confession, the, de, the time before the Lord, but we can certainly see what is external, can't we? 
The presence of genuinely good deeds in a person's life reveals that he is truly saved. And in God's infallible eyes, those deeds are perfectly a perfectly reliable indicator of saving faith. And it is God's eyes because we all know that there are masterful deceivers of good works. But they're not unto the Lord. They're to the glory of something very different, right? I want to just close with three passages to help us kind of pull this together. From John, from our Lord, and back to Paul. Look at 1 John 1, 1 John 1, 5 through 10 with me. On this idea of harmonizing our works, our deeds, our judgment, our salvation, the issue of ongoing sin, John just begins to unpack it right here in this epistle that is designed to drive us to examine ourselves in the light of everything we've just learned this morning, right? John says in verse 5, This is the message we have heard from him, Jesus himself, and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we will have fellowship with one another. There's that unity in the church. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And I'm sure you all know a number of communities who will confess quite clearly that sinlessness is absolutely not only a possibility, but very, very much a reality for an awful lot of people. How can you read this passage if you don't read it and then just throw it right out the window and say, no, I got something way more special, right? Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And I can just say, thank God for the example of David that teaches us the importance of repentance throughout the course of our life throughout the course of our life. How many people do you know that say, yeah, I repented on April 23rd, 19 years ago, and I am good. Repentance is a constant growing in a right thinking about God, which then allows us to see our sin and realize in the context of this judgment, I will be judged for that very thing. To drive the church to what? Purity, holiness, that is spirit-led, right? Jesus says it this way in John 8, 30 and 32. This is a passage that is, it's like this 10,000 foot deep hole 
is just big enough for you to fall into. Jesus says after a very intense exchange with the Pharisees where you see that some came out of that exchange with Jesus and the religious leaders believing Jesus and not the religious leaders. And look at what Jesus says about that. And he was saying these things, and as he was saying these things, John comments, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. Now, they believed in him. What would you think when you read that if you didn't read verse 31? Oh, there are some believers. There are some converts. They believed in Jesus. And what does Jesus say? And by the way, put this in the context of the Great Commission to go make disciples. Jesus says in verse 31, So the Jews said to those who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And there again is the mark. The good works that are found in the eyes of the Father flow right out of abiding in the Word of God, believing the Word of God, and obeying the Word of God. Those are the works they're talking about. Abiding in the Word of God, right? It is not a choice to say, ah, no thanks, not today, right? And then look what it says in verse 32. And I think about so many of us and so many people that are so bound. But Jesus says, if you will abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And we should ask, free from what? The eternal consequence of sin and judgment to eternal hell, right? But also free to conquer that sin in our life through the work of the Holy Spirit and the obedience to the Word of God. And Paul makes this beautifully clear, and we'll end here. In Romans 8, one of the most glorious passages especially at about 4 o'clock in the morning on the confession of one man who was laying in a hotel room fully aware of the wrath of God that he was under. When I read these words, it were just the most precious words to me with a proper understanding. Romans 8, 1 through 8 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I want you to think about what Jesus said in John about sets you free when I read this. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You see what he's talking about? Though you will be judged, you will be declared not guilty because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the external righteousness, the perfect righteousness, right? It's just beautiful. Verse 3, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. That's Paul's whole purpose of Romans 2. 
By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit who is in us. And by the way, this is right where we grieve the Holy Spirit. Right here. Because he's here. And his ministry is to exalt Christ through us. And when we choose to bring shame upon the namesake, it grieves him. And it grieves him. And it grieves him. That's what grieving the Holy Spirit means. right? And Paul is showing us exactly where that occurs right here. Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And remember what we talk about? Your heart drives your thinking, which drives your behaviors. There it is right there. Set your minds on the things of the Spirit, and it will drive our behavior You set it on the flesh, and the flesh will come out all over the place, won't it? Verse 6, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. And we know that peace is peace with God. It's reconciliation with God. It is the transformation of a child of the devil under the wrath of God to a child who has placed their faith in his beloved son, and he now calls them a child and adopts them into the family of God. That's the Colossians 1, 12, and they're transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light. This is what they do. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And fearfully, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And I'm just reminded of how glorious This chapter transitions look at verse 37 of Romans 8 and we'll close here no in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And can't you just wonder if as Paul is writing this letter, if he just needed to say that, (laughs) right? Because every bit of it is just the glorious grace of God. So 